Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate Asked him again, what have you, have you not, no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner, for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison, whom, they, whom had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do so as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release to them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Anselm of Canterbury once wrote, The debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So as a family, we love movies. Kim and I and the kids, we love to spend time together watching movies. It's one of our favorite activities. And we especially love the big epic movies, the stories of good versus evil, the stories where the struggle threatens to overtake the entire world or the whole galaxy. We've even been able to talk Kim into watching the whole Star Wars series with us. And if you knew, knew anything about that, you'd realize that was almost a miracle by itself. But right at the top of the list of all the movies that we like as a family to watch over and over and over again, it is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It is the go-to set of movies that we will watch over and over and over again. And in this series, it is something that we can see what is clearly at stake, that evil is growing more and more and more powerful and it seems at some point that all could be lost. But then there is still this glimmer of hope. And the series, right, it all builds up, as you know, if you know the storyline, it all builds up to this climactic battle that looms on the horizon. The entire, entire story, for all of its ups and downs, and for its successes and failures, it all builds towards this one cataclysmic event. And there is a line in the movie of the return of the king, where I think just kind of you know, emphasizes the nature of that, where Gandalf looks off in the distance 
and he announces that the final battle is near, and he says, the board is set, the pieces are moving, we come to it at last, the great battle for our, of our time. This right here is actually the place where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We are at the place, the Gospel of Mark, where the entire story has been building and, and driving. Right? Now keep in mind, we began this series following Jesus in order to learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That was the purpose of why we uh, started this series. And Mark has been perfect for that end to this point because it is a fast-moving narrative that focuses a lot on what Jesus does and how he lives and how he treats people. Matthew has a lot more in the way of teaching, but a lot less than what Jesus actually does. Mark has been a wonderful book to learn about discipleship. But now the gospel, the focus is shifted to the point where everything in Mark has been driving. The final battle, the major climax. You see, Jesus Christ is at the height of his ministry. He's at the height of his popularity. He has healed people. He has cast out demons. Everybody wants to know him and be near him and be his, his friend. And he rides into Jerusalem and, and, and confirmed what everyone has been thinking about him, that he is indeed the Messiah and the King. He rides into the city on the back of a donkey, conjuring up images of the coronation of King Saul in the past. The king indeed has come, and everybody knows it. Everybody understands the significance of what he's doing. And the city's electric with celebration. If you remember, they go before him laying down palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means literally, save now. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming to be. They knew that he was the Messiah, the, the son of David, the king of Israel. And the king was preparing for battle. Now, everyone, including Jesus' own disciples, were expecting Jesus to lead a rebellion against the Roman Empire. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were expecting. They expected Jesus had come to be a political agent that would drive out the Roman oppressors. But Jesus came to do battle with a very different kind of enemy. He came to do battle with a much greater enemy. And that is the enemy that not only enslaved the nation of Israel, but it's the, the enemy that has enslaved the entire world. The enemy that has ruled over every person that has ever lived across the globe. Jesus came riding into the city triumphantly to do battle with the greatest enemies creation has ever known. The enemy known as sin, the enemy known as death, but our arch enemy, Satan himself, the serpent that was promised to be crushed in the Garden of Eden. But as Jesus came into the city, the forces of darkness began to come out against him. Jesus comes in and he clears the temple in an act of judgment against the nation of Israel and her, her leaders for their unfaithfulness to be what they, what they were created to be. And Jesus' enemies were quick to come out against him and they tried to find ways to arrest him and to undo him and to kill him. But he was too smart for them, too wise for them, too sovereign for them, and too popular for, for them to touch him. Right? But they kept trying publicly and secretly to find a way to undo him. And then we come to the evening of the Passover, 
And in the calm of the night, Jesus prepares himself for the great battle that lay ahead. The great battle that will, that will not just set small nations free, but will set free people across the world. A battle that will bring life and hope, not to just thousands of Jews, but billions and billions of people all over the world for thousands of years. And in the calm of the evening, he tells his followers that he will be betrayed into the hands of his own enemies and that they will all abandon him before it's over. Which is exactly what happened. They all left him when he was arrested. Jesus, one of the closest friends that he had, led a crowd of soldiers and officials right up to Jesus and they arrested him and his followers abandoned him, including Peter himself who bragged about how he would never leave Jesus. He would never walk away from Jesus. But not only does he deny not ever following Jesus, he denies even knowing who he is. And Jesus, being wrongfully accused, is beaten by his enemies. The great battle has begun. And this is where we find ourselves as we take up our text. This is not just a drama of a, of a man in a small city, in a small nation, somewhere in history. This is the drama of all humanity, and all of our hope resides on this battle. And so turn with me to Mark chapter 15, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. This is trial, <clears throat> which we know to be, a, to be a farce, that we know that it was a mock trial, was held in the middle of the night, and they pronounced him guilty and deserving of death. And so it is now early in the morning, and it says that basically the Sanhedrin, that's what he's referring to when he names all these groups of people together. The Sanhedrin had come together, right? And the ESV renders the Greek as held a consultation, but really um, the, the expression is better rend rendered as they made their plans. That's a better way to render that text because that's what they were doing. They were making their plans, now that they've decided that Jesus had to die, they had to figure out a plan. Now, why would they need a plan? Why would they have to plan this? Well, because even though they have agreed to kill Jesus, even though they have agreed that he must die, and they have found whatever rationale to make themselves feel better about it, they can't do anything about it on their own. They have two fundamental problems. Number one, these powerful men even though they were powerful in their city, are just like everyone else. They are subject to the Roman Empire and subject to Roman law. And as such, they had no ability on their own to carry out a capital punishment for any reason. They didn't have the right to do so. And so for all their posturing and all their self-importance and all their self-righteous indignation and for all their arrogance, they don't even have the authority to do the things that they want to do. Secondly is the issue of the bogus charges against Jesus, of blasphemy. Even if it was true, still not enough to get the Romans to kill Jesus, no matter how they felt about it. 
Even if it were true that Jesus were a blasphemer, even if he was the biggest heretic and blasphemer the world has ever seen, Rome did not care about Jewish religious law. They could care less. And so they, they met because they had to come up with a plan of how they were going to approach the Roman governor. And, and they decided, you know, what charges that they would bring that they think would, would stick against Jesus in order to persuade the Romans to kill him. And so they made their, their plans. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And so early in the morning, they took Jesus to Pontius Pilate to be tried. And they took him before dawn because at dawn was a time where Pilate actually held courts. And that way cases would be tried before him at that time. Now, Mark doesn't explain for us who Pilate is because in his gospel, his audience would have been familiar with who he was, and he didn't have to explain who he was. He just assumes his readers know. Well, given the fact that we live 2,000 years later, I think it's important that we understand a little bit more about him. Pontius Pilate was the governor of all of Judea, and he was a career politician commissioned by Caesar himself. And the fact is, he didn't particularly like the Jews. He didn't, but he did try to keep the peace to the best of his ability. He was a ruler who did give the, the Jews some latitude at times, but he was very quick to put down insurrections, and at times he was heavy-handed in the process. And because of the complaints against him that were made, they made their way to Rome, he was under a bit of scrutiny for his heavy-handedness. And he knew it. He knew that, that, that Caesar was looking at him like, okay, what are you doing here? Right? He knew that he had to be very careful in how he ruled. He, didn't want, he couldn't let them get away with anything, but at the same time, he needed to make sure that they weren't continually rebelling and he was continually having to spend resources fighting them. And so he was very careful to monitor things and not let them get out of hand. Now, and another important detail for a context of this story is what we need to understand is Pilate did not reside in Jerusalem. I think we just read this and we just assume that he did, but the fact of the matter is he didn't. His residence was actually in the city of Caesarea. That was his official uh, home as the governor of Judea. He governed the entire province from that location. But Pilate would travel to Jerusalem on special occasions and certain times of year. And one of those times of year that he would make a point to be in Jerusalem was during the Passover. Right? Now, why would he come to Jerusalem on a holiday? Is it because he really enjoyed the food and the culture? No. The reason why he would come to Jerusalem during Passover was quite simple. Passover was a time of year that always brought with it the potential for political upheaval. Think about this. During the Passover, the population of, of Jerusalem would swell. The city, during the year, had a population of less than 100,000. And during Passover, that number could rise as high as a million people, right? A million Jews that come from all over the world to the city to celebrate the festival. That would mean, in the span of a few days, the Roman army would be outnumbered really, really fast. Secondly was the sense of their Jewish national, nationalistic pride. The Jews might have been a conquered people, but they were a proud people, and they saw themselves as God's people, and they believed that they had the right to rule themselves rather than the Romans. Very nationalistic. And number three, what were they celebrating at the Passover? What's the point of Passover? 
They're celebrating a historical event where they were freed by God from the oppression and enslavement of another country. It would be a reminder every year of what they were freed from and a reminder that they're still under, in bondage. It was a reminder that the Jews in their past had been delivered under the yoke of bondage, similar to the yoke that they are now under with the Romans. And then you had, in addition to that, the fact that there were insurrections and rebellions that were frequent in the area. There were zealots that were continually stirring up trouble, always looking for a reason to create conflict. And so Pilate would come to Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, every year to personally keep an eye on things. Right? to personally lead a military campaign if it was required to put down any type of uprising. He wanted to personally supervise that. Pilate was in the city because, there was all, because at this time of the year, there's potential political upheaval. Right? And so what we need to realize is that this time of year, this is something when we read the text we don't always get a sense of, is that this is a very politically charged environment at this moment. Right? This is a politically charged time of year, right? And, and it, it was very electric, right? People were celebrating, but they were looking forward to a great hope, and people were already looking for the Messiah. And then Jesus rides into town, and people are celebrating His coming as a Messiah and King, not to mention, we know, just from reading the text, that there was the potential for mob violence. That's the reason why the Jews wouldn't touch Him. They knew that if they grabbed a hold of Him, the mob might turn on Him and kill Him. They knew that the crowd could turn on them in an instant. That's why they waited till virtually the middle of the night, and he was virtually alone to arrest him. And that's why they're bringing him before, before Pilate first thing in the morning before the crowd really finds out what's happening. Again, this politically charged atmosphere could get really weird really, really fast. That's what they're facing in this moment. And, and I think we know something about that, don't we? I mean... During this, this last year, we have seen what a politically charged atmosphere looks like. And we have seen politicians playing both sides of the issue in order to stir crowds up. We have seen how quickly crowds can form and how fast things can turn violent as we have seen cities across our nation burn. Our, our country has been plagued all year long by this political unrest. Just realize this is how it's been for 2,000 years. What we're facing today is not anything really new. And this is what's happening right now in the story. You have essentially a powder keg in Jerusalem. And the Jewish leaders know what they have. Right? And they've raised the level by arresting Jesus. They have raised the potential for conflict by taking this man and arresting him and bringing him to Pilate on bogus charges. And so the fact is things can get messy really, really fast. And any politician at that time needed to be really quick-witted to figure out what to do next. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, what we need to realize is Mark moves really, really fast in this story, as Mark does. He sometimes skips over the details. He doesn't take the time to tell us the details and write about Pilate's exchange with the high priest as they actually come and have a conversation and lay out the charges that they're going to make against Jesus. The Gospel of Luke actually fills in the details for us in Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, we get a little bit more clarity on what's happening here. It says, the whole company of them arose and, and brought with them 
with him, excuse me, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he is Christ, a king. Now, I want you to think about this. This is a politically charged and precarious environment. And the Jews know this full well. And like every politician, they use this knowledge to their advantage. And they leveled three charges against Jesus that were designed to make him seem like he is a political threat to Rome. They're using this politically charged environment in a way to make Jesus seem like he's a really dangerous person to Rome. Again, the parallels between then and now are staggering, which proves an important point that we should have learned a long time ago. Politicians have always been the same. As the saying goes, politicians are going to politic, right? That's another topic for a whole different sermon. Suffice it to say, the the high priest comes to, to Pilate and he charges Jesus in a way that makes him seem like he's a threat to the Roman Empire, like he's an insurrectionist, like he is a rebel, like he is what's dangerous in their society. In fact, they level three separate charges against him. Number one, they say that he's misleading our nation, or basically, he's inciting resurrection by what he's saying. Again, sounds really familiar. Number two, they say that Jesus is forbidding them of, of, of giving tribute to Caesar. In other words, he's saying, you shouldn't pay your taxes, which we know is an outright lie, because Jesus had already confirmed for them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. He never said, don't pay your taxes. In fact, he said, you should pay your taxes. And number three, they accuse him of saying that he himself is Christ, a king, which, by the way, is exactly true. It is true. Now, what you need to realize is, given that climate, these three charges that they presented to the high priest, those were things that he would, he would take very seriously at that time, especially since Jesus was well-known in Judea and since he was very popular. That's why Pilate asked him directly the question, are you the king of the Jews? He's getting right to the heart of the matter. Pilate gets right to the issue. Now, it's important for us to pause for a second, and I want you to think about something for a second. The expression that they're using there, the king of the Jews, is really a Gentile expression. It's actually almost a pejorative, but it's a Gentile expression because, because what they refer to as the king of the Jews, the Jews themselves refer to as the king of Israel. You see, the Romans don't think in terms of the unified nation of Israel. They think in terms of Judea and the people who live there, the Jews. But the Jews, because of who they are, are thinking in old covenant terms. And they are thinking about the implications of what that means for all of the promised land. right? And so they're not looking for the king of Judea. They're not looking for the coming of the king of the Jews. They're looking for the coming of the king of Israel, the king of all of God's people. And they believed that Jesus was thinking to himself, in the, th- thinking of himself in those terms. They believed that Jesus thought he was the king of Israel. In fact, in verse 32 of this same chapter, that's how they sarcastically refer to Jesus. They say, let the Christ, 
the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They very clearly understood that Jesus believed to be the King of Israel. That's what they called Him, disrespectfully, the King of Israel. Now, in either case, be it the King of Jews or the King of Israel, Pilate asks this accusation seriously. He wants to know, does he fancy himself as a king? Then when we read Jesus' answer, he says, and he said to him, you have said so. Now, when you read that answer, it's actually a bit strange to us. Again, we're reading in English something that's in Greek. And the reason why it's strange is because we know it's a positive answer. We know that he's affirming the truth that he is the king. Jesus, is, in essence, is saying yes, which means, right, but the thing is, is if he directly is saying, yes, I'm a king, what we would expect out of Pilate at this point was to actually say, okay, you're guilty, take him away, and have him executed right away. But that's not what happens when Jesus says yes. And the reason it, it, it doesn't happen that way is because Jesus' answer in Greek, the way he answers is, is yes, but not exactly how you think I'm the king. It expresses yes, but there's a qualification to the yes. It is yes, I'm the king, but maybe not in the conception that you think I'm the king. The Gospel of John actually gives us a lot of insight into this conversation and helps us to see why Pilate didn't just suddenly have him removed and executed. In John uh, chapter 18, Pilate asks, beginning in verse 33, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do, did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom... If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. I want you to notice he doesn't say that my servants would be fighting that I would be delivered to you. He doesn't say that. He says that I might not be delivered to the Jews. You see, Jesus is revealing that he is, is now he's before Pilate. He's before Pilate, not because he's a, he's a threat to Rome, He's before Pilate because he's a threat to the Jewish leaders. That's what he's expressing. He's saying that I'm here now, not because of you and what I could do to Rome. I'm here now because they, what, what I could do to them. And then he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? You see, what you need to see in this story is that Pilate realizes really quickly that Jesus is not the political threat to him that they're making him out to be. He is not a political threat to Rome. He is a threat to the Jewish religious establishment. He is a threat to those in political and religious power in Judea. He realizes that he's not a political threat to Rome itself. This is a political and religious issue among the Jews. That's what he sees. He understands. He's beginning to see that this whole thing about Jesus is a sham, that it's made up. 
It's a total fabrication. And they're accusing Jesus of the very thing, by the way. You realize that? They're accusing Jesus of the very thing that he actually refused to do what everybody wanted him to do, which was to become a political activist and start a rebellion against Rome. He refused to do the very thing he's, he's being accused of doing. And Pilate sees it. He knows that, he's fault, that it's false. But the Jews continue to press the accusation against Jesus and says the chief priests accused him of many things. They're desperately looking for a way to convince Pilate to execute Jesus. They're hurling all kinds of charges against him. And Pilate asks him again, it says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now, what we see here is Jesus, like before, in his previous trial, he doesn't dignify the bogus charges against him by even speaking. He doesn't even give it a thought. He doesn't give it a word. In fact, in both of these trials, we see very similar details. I don't know if you realize that. Jesus is questioned about a number of false accusations, and he remains silent. And then they ask him about something that's true, and he clearly and firmly affirm it, affirms the truth. He says, yes, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the King of Israel, the King of God's elect people. And so Jesus doesn't dignify these false accusations with an answer. And notice it says that Pilate was amazed with Jesus. He was probably amazed by his composure under such stressful circumstances. Think about this. Jesus was brought before the most powerful man in the area. He was obviously been beaten. We, we just read about that. They were, they were hitting him. So obviously he's got lumps and bumps, right? And now he's being tried for insurrection, which, is, which would carry with it a death penalty. But Jesus, in the midst of this, is completely in control, completely unshakable, completely unflappable under the circumstances. And this amazes Pilate. But here's the thing. Amazement at Christ has been a very common theme that we've seen throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. Everywhere Jesus went, people were amazed by Him. It goes all the way back to, to, to chapter 1 in verses 21 and 22. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished or amazed at His teaching, for He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. A few verses later, in verse 27, it reads, And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Remember, this is one of my favorite stories, is where He heals the paralytic in front of everybody, right? Rise, take up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never saw anything like this. Chapter 5, verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled or was amazed. This was the demoniac that, was, that had all the demons, and Jesus healed him and wouldn't let him follow him, but said, You know, go tell people how God's been good to you. And he did. 
And then in chapter 6, verse 2, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done in his hands? Chapter 7, verses 36 and 37, And Jesus charged them, all, charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well, and He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They were astonished, amazed beyond measure. And then takes us all the way back to 11, chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, where it kind of kicks this off. It says, And He was teaching them, saying, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, but all the crowd was astonished or amazed at his teaching. Amazement is a common reaction to Jesus. Pilate was amazed by him. But let's pause right here and think about this. Because I want you to notice that Pilate was amazed. But he did not believe in Jesus. He was amazed, but he didn't trust in Him. And that's what we see all over the, the, the New Testament. Lots of people are astonished and amazed by Jesus because of what He said and what He's done, but many of them don't ever come to faith in Him. In fact, this is, this is important for us because because part of the world around us is amazed by Jesus. There, there are people that are part of this world that would even call themselves Christians that are amazed by Jesus. They're amazed by His compassion for the outcast. They are amazed by His example of perfect humanity. They are amazed by His radical definition of love. And they believe that the church should be on mission to go out and demonstrate those qualities of Christ for the rest of the world because they are amazed by Him. But hear me, many of those people who are amazed by Jesus don't believe in Him. They don't believe that He is fully divine. They don't believe that He's the eternal Son of God. There's a group of modern Christians that call themselves progressives that will tell you they don't believe the supernatural stuff about Jesus at all. But they still worship and they still come together because they believe that they're going to make because He can make them better people and more loving. They don't believe that His mission right, was, was not to just simply be an example for us. They don't believe His mission, His primary mission, was to save sinners from the wrath of God. Here's the thing. We should be amazed by Christ and what He's done and what He continues to do in the world around us through His church. But your amazement with Christ in the end, is pointless and a waste of time if you're not trusting Him as your Savior. It's meaningless. You're just spending your energy for nothing. It's vanity. If you think that Jesus came to make you a better version of who you are, you have missed the gospel altogether. Christ didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. If you're writing things down, maybe that one would be the one you should write down. Christ didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Now, 
as a natural byproduct of being changed, we do become better people, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. Right? So don't allow your amazement for Christ's ministry on earth to cause you to miss the most important work that he's done, which is his righteous life, his substitutionary atoning death, and his victorious resurrection. By all means, be amazed by Jesus, but turn to him in repentance and faith and make Jesus you know, your Savior and the absolute sovereign Lord of your life. And if you haven't done it today, do it today, because tomorrow might be too late. I implore you. So Pilate was amazed by Jesus, but he had, right? And he also had no reason to convict him. He had none, no basis. And he wanted to release him. We can see that throughout the Gospels. When you read all the Gospels, we see he wanted to let him go. But then we read in verse 6, Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them. So there was a custom in Judea at the time where they would ask during the Passover for release of a prisoner. Now there are some critics, critical scholars that say that never happened, there's no, there's no basis for that, we don't have any evidence for that. Actually, that's incorrect. First of all, all four Gospels bear witness to that. That's, that's one of the places where they all agree completely on that. Secondly, there is evidence in other cultures where the Romans did do this on certain religious holidays. And so we can be confident that this has actually happened, that Rome would, would hear their plea and at times, if it suited their own interests, to grant it. And Mark mentions a man named Barabbas, and, and not a lot is known about him, but we can discern from the Gospels that he is a man who was part of an insurrection one of the many insurrections that were frequent in that era. In fact, Luke says, refers to it specifically as the insurrection in the city, which means that these, all of these people would have known what this incident was. And it was during this insurrection that Barabbas had killed someone and was arrested and was awaiting his judgment for that. What's even more interesting is the Greek term that's used for Barabbas and the insurrection is also a term that's used of Jesus, or Jesus uses of himself in the garden when he, when he said, have you come out against a robber? We've talked about this before, that that actually is better translated as an insurrectionist or a rebel. And what's interesting is it's the word that's similarly used to describe the two men that get crucified with Christ on the cross. It's likely the two criminals that were crucified with Jesus were actually insurrectionists who were caught up in the same insurrection that Luke talks about and that Barabbas literally was trading places with Jesus that he would have been the third person on the cross had Jesus not been there. Which didn't actually make sense if you think about it because the thieves on the cross being executed seems to be excessive, you know, even for the Romans. Now with that, the group of people come and and separately of the chief priests, they ask Pilate to, to please release Barabbas. Now, why does he, why they ask for him and not anybody else? I have no idea. But what we do know is that they ask for him specifically, and Pilate, he sees this, he realizes there's an opportunity for him to paint the Jews into a corner here. He answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. 
You see, that he knew that, that Jesus was popular and he realized that he was a threat to the Jewish religious leaders and not a political threat to Rome. And he knew that they were envious of his popularity and what, what following he was gaining. And so he asks the, the chief priests, all right then, smarty pants, then who should I let go? Barabbas, a man we know to be guilty, or Jesus, a man that we, we know to be innocent? That's, in essence, what he's asking them. Should we release Barabbas, who we know by his record is a political threat, who has blood on his hands? We all know it. Or do we release Jesus, who's done actually many wonderful things for many people that you yourself have witnessed? Pilate is painting these men into the corner because he knows that they claim to be men of the law. They're men who profess to represent God himself. These are men who claim to have a certain moral authority. How could they possibly have in good conscience the ability to free a man that they know to be guilty and then condemn a man that they know to be innocent? What a, what a conundrum these men are in. What a pickle that he's put them in. Remember all the pickles they try to put Jesus in, the no-win situations? So the question is, will they do what was obviously right, or will they actually let their hate cause them to break their own religious law by condemning an innocent man to death? What's interesting about hate is that hate has a tendency to blind us. It has a tendency to blind us to the truth. It has a tendency to blind us to the consequences of our actions. It has a tendency to, to, to conceal the ugliness we have inside of us. Our hate has a tendency to distort the reality. This, by the way, is why I continue to preach about forgiveness as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why I always will continue to preach about grace because hate and bitterness and grudges will consume your heart. They will lie in there in the darkness and they will have their effect on your life. Holding on, bitter, holding on to bitterness is like, like can, holding on to poison in your soul. Unforgiveness clouds our judgment. Hate will cause you to do things that you know to be wrong. But you'll justify the ends by the means, or the means by the ends, which is what these men are doing. They know. They're now in a position. They're now in a position to have their very credibility Right? As religious leaders and as public figures questioned, their credibility is at stake, but their hate is driving them to not care about any of that. Rather, they commit the most egregious sin to bear false witness against the innocent, spotless Son of God. Sins, by the way, that they would soon be judged for when Jesus' prediction that the city would be destroyed comes true and the Sanhedrin are basically disbanded forever. So notice how their hatred causes them to respond. It says in verse 11, But the chief priest stirred up the crowd and gave to, to have him release for them Barabbas instead. The religious leaders used their influence not to do what was right, but to use the crowd for its own end, to hype them up. They did so that Pilate would release Barabbas under the pressure of the mob. And Pilate said to them again, 
then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Pilate honestly thought that he should go free. And so he asked him, what do you want me to do with this man? Obviously he's innocent. What do you want me to do with him then? And, he cried, and they cried out, crucify him! And Pilate said to them, why? What has he done? What evil has he done? Please do not let this slip by you. This is one of those details we read through and we just keep going, but, but, but let this settle in your mind. He asked them, why should I have him crucified? On what grounds? Right? And then he asked them a supporting question. What's the evil that he's actually committed that's deserving of death? What charge can you bring that proves that he warrants a death sentence? Because the truth is, right now, you haven't proven anything. You failed to prove your case. We know that he's innocent. I'm telling you, he's innocent. Pilate very clearly knows it. That's why he's asking him, what has he done that you can prove that warrants this death sentence? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. In this politically charged climate, the Jewish leaders began to stir up the crowd into a frenzy, and Pilate, seeing that this can turn ugly really, really fast, gives in to the mob and releases Barabbas. Now we know that Mark actually compresses the details here a bit because we know that initially Jesus was scourged or, or beaten with, with a whip in, in order that maybe that if he punishes Christ that way and he does so severely, that maybe this would satisfy their, their, their bloodlust and see that he's really been beaten, that the Jewish leaders would then give up their call to kill him. But that doesn't work. Jesus Jesus stood before these men, beaten, unrecognizable, bloody all over. The whips that they hit him with were multi-tailed whips that have pieces of bone and, and metal and lead in them. The first few licks would have caused initial surface-level tears in his back, but each subsequent lash would begin to go deeper and deeper and deeper to where arteries would begin to be exposed. Here he is with his skin hanging off of his back in literal ribbons, probably trembling from shock, writhing in overwhelming pain. It must have been a pitiful sight to behold. But there was no pity found in their hard hearts. In fact, John records the high priest as saying, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And they kept shouting, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate recognizes that he now is facing a potential uprising. And he did exactly what politicians do. He weighed out the options and did what was in his own best interest. He handed Jesus over, a man that he knew for a fact to be innocent. He handed him over to be crucified. And that's going to where we're going to leave off for the week. And in our grief in this moment, we see this pitiful man 
naked, humiliated, bloodied beyond recognition, in horrific pain, unimaginable agony. The only righteous man who have ever lived, now condemned to death as a common criminal. And to be honest, this part right here always brings me to tears, no matter how many times I read the gospel. And in my heart, I keep hoping that somehow the next time I read it, it's going to be different. That somehow Jesus doesn't have to suffer. Every time I read this, I'm hoping somehow it's different. It's like every time I watch The Return of the King, when it seems the battle has finally turned, right? right? And, and they're winning. And then the king of Rohan shouts, rally to me. When that happens, I know that Theoden's going to die. But I keep hoping that somehow, way, that he'll get out of the way. That somehow he would survive. Every time we watch the Battle of Five Armies, I keep hoping that Feely and Keely and Thorin somehow get rescued at the last moment before they're killed. But I know, I know that they're not going to be. I know how this story turns out. I've read the Gospels more times than I can recall. I know what's going to happen. But as I think about Jesus standing there alone and wounded and weary, standing there as the chief priests hurl insults at him, shouting in their hate-filled voices, crucify him, my heart breaks. And I want somehow for the story to change. But I then remember as pitiful as Jesus seems to be in this moment. Jesus is exactly where He's supposed to be, and He's fully and completely in control in this moment. And in this moment, Jesus is not some weak and wounded, helpless victim. He stands there as the King of the world, and He is marching forward to the final battle. The battle that He will wage on the cross. The battle where where, where once and for all, all the curses that held creation in sway and in bondage for 2,000 years will be undone. Where He will undo the power of the evil one who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? Where He will undo the chasm that has been placed between God and man. Behold, brothers and sisters, your King marches forward to victory. The great battle for all ages has begun. We praise the Lord that we know how this story goes. We know that our king is victorious. We talked about this morning. He conquered sin in the grave. That there is no rival and no equal. And we're going to walk through the details of that in the coming weeks. But as we wrap up today, I want you to think about a couple of things in light of this teaching. We need to be very clear that the Bible shows us the truth about things. And what we see in this text is a picture of how people really are. We have a sugar-coated picture of people 
without the Word of God, we're going to have a sugar-coated picture of people. What we see is how people really are. Understand the Sanhedrin, those men believed that they were good people. They had families. They loved their kids. They loved their neighbors. They loved their grandchildren. They were nice to people. They believed to be good people trying to do right by their fellow man. That's what they believed in of themselves. They believed that they were doing what was right for their families and their community and their country. And they believed that they had noble intentions. But yet, in their sense of justice, they're willing to do things they know to be wrong. They bore false witness against an innocent man. They had led an innocent man to his slaughter. How many people do we know that do the wrong thing for what they believe to be the right reason? If you want a common theme that, that, that unites most of the movies and television shows that we have in our culture, that's the theme. It's people doing the wrong thing for the right reason. How many of you can see in ourselves as good people and then try to justify our actions? And likewise, Pilate probably thought of himself as a good man, trying to do good for his country and for the people of, that he was ruling. In fact, he tried to release Jesus because he knew he was innocent. He was actually trying to do the right thing. But in the end, his sense of justice hampered him, was hampered by what? Self-preservation. How many times we've seen this? People who want to do the right thing, who knows that there's a right thing to do, they feel convicted about the right thing, but they don't do it because it's going to cost them something personal. And the truth is that is how people are. That's how people are by default. We're going to look back in history at these men and look down our noses at them as if we would be different in the circumstances. That's how people are, naturally. Even people who profess faith in Christ at times are, can still be deeply influenced by their hatred and their sense of what they think is just so that they will justify their wrongdoings. Many Christians who know what is right will do what is wrong simply because they think it's the right thing to do. And there are many Christians who will know what is right and feel convicted about what is right, but they will fail to do what is right. Why? Because the cost is too high. What we see in these men is how people are when they're pushed by their circumstances. And only the grace of God can change that. Do you realize that? This is... This is why it's ludicrous for us to believe that a political system is going to solve our problems. This is why it is, it is just, just silly for us to think that our government is going to solve our problems. Our government's filled full of well-meaning people. People who love other people. But who themselves think themselves to be good people who are blinded by their own hatred for other people who don't think like they do. And they will justify all the wrong things that they do because they think that they're on the right side of justice. And many people who know what is right to do that surround them, they won't do it. Why? 
because it could cost them their job. It can cost them their retirement. It can cost them all their opportunities. And in some cases, we've seen it cost them their lives. What the world needs now is not more political promises and not more hope invested in somehow that the government's going to save us. What the world needs now more than ever is, is Jesus and the hope of the gospel. Now, the last thing I want you to, to think about is Jesus, the innocent Son of God beaten to a bloody pulp. Now he's marching toward the cross of Calvary. This is the picture of our king bravely marching into battle. But it's also a reminder of the brutal and horrifying cost that it took to set you free. And understand, Jesus didn't have to go through what he did because you were awesome and worth it. He suffered. His suffering is not proof of your worth. He went through what he did because that's how horrible our sin is. It was your sin that caused him to endure the beatings before the Romans. It was your sin that held him to the cross. His suffering is a picture of the depth of our depravity. Let us never lose sight of how horrific the nature of sin is. And let us never forget to tell people about it. But at the same time, let us never lose sight of the truth that Christ willingly paid that price. He willingly paid that price of his own accord. Not that we deserve it, but because of his overwhelming love and unimaginable grace. Jesus is standing there, beaten to a pulp. This is an act of God's grace. You talk about a contrast that sometimes will break your mind. Jesus marching to the cross is an act of grace. Jesus suffering and dying alone, crying out, Father, why have you forsaken me, is an act of God's grace. If you are in Christ, this part of the story should simultaneously break your heart, but also cause you to rejoice. Because Jesus did this by His grace. He did for you all that you couldn't do for yourself. He lived the life that you couldn't live. Fulfilled the law that you couldn't fulfill, and He upheld the covenant you couldn't uphold. And then He willingly took upon Himself your sins and endured in His own body the wrath of God that you couldn't bear. And by faith in Him, your sins are taken and cast upon Him, and His righteousness is cast upon you. And if you were in Christ, in light of that, follow Him and live for Him. That is what it means to follow Jesus. That we forever keep our eyes clearly fixed on our King marching off You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. 
And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.